0: Saul Landau is a senior fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and an internationally known scholar, author, commentator, and filmmaker on foreign and domestic policy issues. He won the Latelier Moffat Human Rights Award, the George Polk Award for Investigative Reporting, and the First Amendment Award, as well as the Emmy for Paul Jacobs and the Nuclear Gang. His new book is A Bush and Botox World. Thank you for joining me, Saul.
1: Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Saul, there is a fantastic line at the beginning of your book. And let me see if I can find it. Uh, Yes. U.S. reality, however, has remained elusive for the U.S. public. This is, I believe, the theme of your book.
1: Yes, I think the U.S. public is uh, confronted with a daily problem. Those few who read the newspaper, of course, have to face it. The stark news on page two or three, which says... Oh, global warming is accelerating even faster than scientists predicted. We only have 30 years left of life on Earth if we keep up this pace, or maybe 40 years for the optimistic scientists. And uh, you read this news on page 2 or page 3 of the New York Times or the L.A. Times, and juxtaposed to that is an ad that says, have sex forever with Viagra or whatever... Cialis or one of those things, and your eye, your left eye hits the Viagra ad, and the right eye hits the global warming ad, and you say, what am I going to do about global warming? Yeah, that's the world's problem. But there, I'm an old guy here, you know, wow. Or, you know, you need uh, eight more Americans killed in Iraq, 67 die in car bombing. Next, that says you need a new iPhone, and here's what the iPhone will do for you. It will improve your life. You'll be able to watch a video as you walk down the street. And so, so what are you going to pay attention to? This is the reality. It's our Botox world. And we have a president who is the Botox president. I mean, he believes, you know, as Botox, you put it on a wrinkle and the wrinkle goes away. Well, for a few minutes or for a day. You got to go back next day and... You know, people have been doing Botox drips for now for for a long time. Well, Bush has found his Botox democracy. You drop a little democracy on the problems of the world, like a wrinkle, it goes away. Well, well, so it doesn't work quite as well, but uh, this is the idea. And so here we have the president who arrives in the White House just as Botox is emerging as a middle-class panacea to cure aging which is, of course, a great problem in the United States. Aging is now thought of as a major illness. You know, I think lots and lots of people are waiting
0: around, hoping that science and medicine will find a cure for death.
1: Uh,
0: and an equal number are w- hoping that our Cong- Congress will legislate legalized suicide.
1: Well, yes. Uh, the, um, Congress also is waiting for an advance in medical science. I think they're waiting for the spinal transplant. I'm talking about Democrats, of course, who vowed to end the Iraq War and uh, have somehow not found the courage to do so. Uh, but I think, you know, hopefully they will. Somebody said that the two parties, the R Party, the Ridiculous Party, <clears throat> and the D Party, the Disappointing Party, now make up the uh, basically the panoply of American politics. Uh, and that's it. And, you know, there's there's almost no political discourse. So we are in this very strange Botox world, and led by a president who is, uh, I think, makes it very clear to the public every time he speaks that uh, he's missing at least one intellectual screw. And uh, although he does very creative things with the English language, I don't think we've ever had a president who has done more experimentation with English in public than uh, George Bush. So you have to hand him that, and he will go down uh, without doubt, no competition, as the very worst president in American history. So
0: yeah, he has done things, you know. There's, he's accomplished things. One thing that interests me, you have a essay in here on the Salton Sea, and I think that's a very appropriate metaphor because when you look at the Salton Sea, it's kind of pretty, it looks nice, but really, it's a toxic waste that has, was created to look nice, but it's very deadly to both it's, uh, those around it and it's the environment in which it was created.
1: The Salton Sea stands like a metaphor for what people have done with nature and to nature. It was created about a little over 100 years ago when some dams broke in the Colorado River or were broken. And so water flowed out of the Colorado River for a year or two, and it all collected in a prehistoric lake bed, which is now called the Salton Sea. And, of course, it was called that because all the salts at the bottom made it so salinated. But since then, because it is the lowest point in the area, all of the irrigation runoff collects there, Uh, water that's coming out of the Alamo and the New River flowing up from Mexicali very rare that rivers flow from south to north, but in this case, because the Salton Sea is lower than Mexicali, the rivers flow up there, and they carry some of the toxic waste that's left from the maquiladoras in Mexicali, and there are many of them. So all of the goop that's in the area is dropping into the Salton Sea, and it can't just be allowed to dry up because there's selenium that's collected on the top, and if this blows off, it becomes poisonous to agriculture and people. So this has been a creation that's become a nightmare. Back in the 1940s and 50s, the Salton Sea was a major resort. They built a marina there. Some Hollywood stars brought their yachts over there. There was water skiing, and people built retirement homes and vacation homes on both sides of the Salton Sea. And then one year, The farmers in the Imperial Valley decided they had to irrigate more than they usually do. And they did. But because the Salton Sea is so low and it has no place for water to escape, it just flooded all of the property on each bank of the sea. And so everything got ruined. And so much for the great uh, bonanza that was this uh, spa in the desert. There's one last thing about the Salton Sea that's also interesting. There was a a desert Indian tribe, the Torres Martinez tribe. Uh, And they, of course, when the sea came, stopped hunting, gathering, and doing primitive agriculture and began fishing because the sea was stocked with certain kinds of fish. Now, uh, they don't catch any fish in the sea. And if they do, you'd
0: have to be pretty crazy to eat it. Tell me a little bit about this culture of image we live on, which, where we, everything exists on the surface. Well, to say that the
1: United States uh, has a superficial culture might be too deep. Uh, I think what has happened is that, and, and all teachers understand this now, they all complain about kids having attention deficit disorders. Well, I, having taught at a university level for a decade, can testify that my students were increasingly illiterate. But they were very good at certain other things. When I taught them digital media, they were excellent. They had great imaginations. They could make instant decisions as a result of playing video games since age two. That is, they learn now through images and sound. They don't learn the way I learned, the way I presume you learned, the way the last thousand plus years of literate people learned. They learned you look at a word, you engrave that word in your mind, you file it somewhere in your brain, and then you cross index it with a whole bunch of other words and use it and so on. Now, uh, kids learn as Marshall McLuhan predicted, they would, in electric images in audio and video. And it's a different world. And they don't have really access to the great books. They don't have access to the wisdom of thousands of years. Their culture is profoundly superficial. It is what they get in the three-quarter second or half-second images that uh, predominate on television, MTV, video games, and all of the rest of the flashing lights and signs that have become uh, symbolic of the culture that we live in. The culture, by the way, that we want to export, you know, because we're number one in the world. Uh, Well, we certainly are number one in terms of uh, illegal crystal meth labs and unwanted pregnancies. And I'm sure lots of other things as well.
0: Could you talk a little bit about your 1968, was it, documentary with Fidel Castro? And give us your thoughts on what recently transpired in the transfer of power.
1: Well, in 1968, um, Fidel Castro took me on a week-long jeep journey through the mountains of Cuba. And he'd stop and play a pickup game of baseball. He stopped once at the nursery school that he attended between ages 3 and 5. He lit up a cigar and remembered some poems that he, that his teacher had taught him in those days. gets into arguments with peasants, uh, hears complaints along the way. He's literally kind of like a socialist feudal lord touring his fief, but listening very, very attentively to all the gripes and dictating notes to how to get them fixed. He's also at this time the master of Cuban agronomy and animal husbandry and hydraulic engineering. Uh, Aside from each night, he's reading another chapter of the biography of Simón Bolívar. This is a man who is running the island at this time from his jeep or from his helicopter. uh, And indeed, Cuba's scientists left the country and Uh, Most of the doctors left and so on. So Castro literally had to bone up on all these specialties in his mind so that he could direct this process of development. This is 1968. Uh, That's almost 40 years ago. Now Fidel is seen in a uh, jogging suit, usually in hospital or in some convalescent posture. He has temporarily transferred power to his brother Raúl, who was a few years younger, I think five years younger. Uh, I haven't seen any indication of real policy change. After all, Raul and Fidel have been partners in every important activity that the two have undertaken since 1953, when they staged an assault on Cuba's military base in Santiago de Cuba. They were together in the mountains uh, fighting guerrilla war. Raul became the head of the Cuban army. He helped organize the Cuban Communist Party. Every major event that took place, Raul was the partner, well, the junior partner, but still the partner of his older brother. Now Fidel is writing essays. Some of them are rather interesting and actually quite profound. Some of them are sort of, I don't know, a little bit silly, but most of them are really interesting. And uh, the country hasn't seemed to skip a beat. I was down there in May, and I was down there last December. I went down with Gore Vidal, and uh, I noticed no difference. There's a slight uh, improvement in the standard of living, but I don't think this has anything to do with the temporary transition to Raul. I think it has to do with the billions of dollars that have been invested by China and Venezuela, by Cuba striking oil, and by nickel prices. Cuba has lots of nickel going through the ceiling. So uh, Cuba remains pretty much the way it was over the last 15, 20 years. The United States, of course, says it wants to change Cuba, but its policies are directed toward keeping Cuba exactly the same as it's been. The United States would lift the embargo. Cuba would change overnight. You'd have thousands of Americans running through Cuba with fat wallets. Fidel, Raul, nobody could control when you lose the control of your economy—that is, the introduction of capital—in the form of people coming in looking to invest, legally, illegally, whatever—you've all of a sudden you've made a change in that country. You lift the travel ban; thousands and thousands of Americans running through the island. It's going to change. But of course, the United States says it wants to change Cuba, but it doesn't. And uh, I think you know my experience with Fidel forty years ago is something that has sort of stuck in my mind as one of the great and most memorable experiences of my life. I've never been with a man so who emoted so much power. I mean, he just vibrated uh, power, not because he was discourteous or rude or anything. Uh, it was as when he entered the tent where we ate breakfast in the morning, it was as if a wind came in with him. Uh, a man whose energy And thinking was directed toward the changing of history of his own country and, as we now know, of the world. And so it was quite an experience to be with him. Uh, It's rare that you meet, in fact, never. I've never met anybody so powerful, for good or for ill.
0: We've been speaking with Saul Landau. His new book is A Bush in Botox World. Thank you for joining me, Saul. Thank you.